Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plugin makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. My guest today is Joel Corlitz. Joel is a composer for film and games based out of Chicago who's worked on an insane number of successful projects such as Hyperlight Breaker, Halo Infinite, Solar Ash, Death Stranding, The Unfinished Swan, and many others. In this episode, we talk about Joel's creative process, how he ended up on working on so many huge name projects even though he doesn't live in LA, what he does when he feels creative block, and so much more. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Joel Corlitz. All right, so I want to hear first about your first game score, which is Unfinished Swan, and you got to record live strings for it. I'm sure this was just this big kind of dream come true moment for you. And I'm wondering, how did you build to that point? Because usually when we look at a composer, we see like, oh, look at all these cool gigs. And we don't really hear about those steps. So I'm curious, what were the steps getting to that recording for that first game? That was such an incredible first game to get to work on. So there were a lot of steps. None of them were other games, though. So I feel like in in a lot of ways, I was incredibly lucky to get that as my first game. I also felt like I was ready. I always wanted to work on games. That was like my goal for as long as I think I, I fired up Metroid on my NES as a kid. I was like, I was so captivated by that music. And I, I sort of had this as a dream. But I think after I went to school, my first order of business, like everyone's, is like, well, how do I make a living? And so my first job writing music was writing music for commercials. And what's great about that as as sort of a training ground is it's all about iteration. It's all about responding to feedback, communicating, not being offended when someone hates what you did. It's about getting into a concept and iterating on it rapidly and talking and figuring out how to put conversations into something that fits. It trained me from thinking that I wanted to write great music, which I I still do and is never sort of a mutually exclusive thing, to also training me to, you know, like strive for writing the right piece of music because it's a commercial. Like... It's designed to sell a product. It has a very objective goal. And the only thing that's going to work is the right piece. I look back on it now in my kind of in my early 20s. That was my training ground. By the time Sony called about the Unfinished Swan, I was like, okay, I'm ready to do this. So that was what I brought to the table. Obviously, different medium, different tone, much more in a lot of ways, for lack of a better word, creative, I think. Uh, A lot more freedom which is, those are all the reasons I wanted to do games instead of commercials. But I should say that I still do a fair amount of composing, not not really for commercials per se, but a lot of audio branding work. Yeah, that makes sense. And when you are working on something with an objective goal, maybe it's easier to like get that feedback or hone in on a certain point. But games don't necessarily have, we need to sell X amount of chicken nuggets, <laughs> right? 
Yeah, that's, I think, a really good example of a skill that like has to be learned. It's, I don't think that tends to be an innate skill. It's a skill that you have to learn. Like we all learn writing music, like everyone has a slightly different musical language and there are different solutions depending on like how you're communicating about music. And I think just going through that process a lot of times quickly with a lot of different people is incredibly instructive for how to first figure out what to write, throw it at the wall and see if it works. And then if it does, or if it doesn't, what do you do next? And I think that that's like, that's development, you know? And, and I think when you're doing it for commercials, it, it for me, it was a nice first step because it's got a very objective goal. It's easy to tell whether it works or not. Um, and then I kind of, I, I kind of view games as a, yeah, like a more creative extension of, of that iterative process in a longer format. But yeah, but I, I had to just practice it like, like anything else. No, no. And, you know, I think about this a lot. Like I think about this idea that like, okay, so yeah, you're right. Like a game isn't designed to sell a product, but also it is the product. So, um, you do like, if you're selling chicken nuggets, you don't want to make anyone cry. <laughs> like, and you know, that's obvious. Like you, people don't want to buy stuff when they're sad or feel uneasy, <laughs> but like in a game, you can do all those things. So there's so much possibility at the same time though, it has to fit the game. Like, so there's this really cool balancing act of like product development and composition and creativity and collaboration and development. That is what I love about games specifically, because you still have these, to me, very exciting creative limitations. You you have boundaries that to me, like only make the job more fun. And those boundaries tend to, it's funny, like you might have more time to work on a game than a commercial, but you have so many constraints in terms of maybe the technology or maybe the visuals or maybe the gameplay limits you in some way, shape or form. And how did you kind of gain that sense? Is it because you just played games forever and you just kind of have a innate sense or do you gain that as you compose for different games? Well, I had the drive and the interest to do it, which I think is like for any composer, that's what keeps you going. Like you just the drive to keep trying it and keep iterating it because it is a medium that I love, you know, not just as a composer, but as a player, it's one of those things where I, I think particularly for a game where very often you are developing the score at the same time as the game, sometimes you can sort of hit a wall and not know what to do. And then you have to know what to do with that. Like, do you just keep trying stuff? Do you wait? I think, you know, like, so much of what we've already talked about is like this idea that, you know, as a composer, writing music is like not the job. Obviously, it's like a byproduct of the job. The job is you're kind of a consultant. So for me, it's kind of like the question that I tend to ask myself is like, what's my role here in this phase of development and how can I help? Because sometimes no one has any idea what it's supposed to sound like. And the only way you can figure it out is just by trying some stuff or making some like educated throwing stuff at the wall sessions, you know, and like, and then you kind of see what evolves from that. But sometimes really like the, I think I've actually had an easier time admitting it as I gain more experience. Sometimes I have no idea what to do, you know, and that's something that's scary. 
It's never something I would have admitted at the beginning of my career. I, just, I have no idea what to do for this. Thanks for calling me. <laughs> but like, as I sort of gain experience and keep doing this, I'm not afraid of that anymore because we're going to figure it out. It's just, what do we need to do to figure it out? It can be really daunting though. Yeah. 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 It can be extremely daunting and a little bit scary when, you know, the client's looking right at you and you're just shrugging at them saying like, let's, let's try. I don't quite say it like that, but yeah, you know, and I think where I like to start, if nobody has any idea what to do, which is rare, actually, you know, sometimes it's, it's pretty open-ended. My role varies as a consultant. Sometimes the developer knows where they want to go musically. And sometimes they're looking to me and my job is to kind of help where I can. Generally, where I like to start, if it's a completely clean slate, which is rare, like I said, is I tend to think about the, this like 2D um, grid of mood and energy level. And I try to use the most objective words I can think of, like, which of course, when you're talking about music, nothing is totally objective because everyone talks about it differently. But what's the energy level? Is it is it fast or slow? <laughs> and is it like, is it happy or sad? Like, let's start there. You know, Unfinished Swan is a good example. You're an orphan and you're in this magical world that um, because of this painting that that your deceased mother left you, it's kind of a sad story. Um, it's lonely. It's isolating. One of the first conversations I remember having with, with Sony, who I worked with a music supervisor from Sony um, throughout most of the process, was like, how do we communicate that emotionally in a way that's not just going to be a bummer to play? And that's where that whole kind of like the product development component comes in. Cause it's like, yeah, you could make it, you could totally underscore the fact that Monroe is an orphan and he's got this sad life, but like, who wants to play that? I mean, it might work for certain experiences, but for the unfinished swan, it needed to also feel magical. So that initial conversation of like, you know, it's, it's almost like when we make stems as composers, like high, low, fast, slow, you know, that's kind of where I start. And then you add complexity pretty quickly to that. So then it's like, all right, we need it to be pensive, but hopeful. So how do we, like, what does that sound like? And then really, like, the other thing that I've figured out, and I feel like this has been a fairly recent discovery of the last couple of years, is you can have a million great conversations about music, and it doesn't matter. Like, so what I try to do is, is keep the conversations fairly short, you know, kind of hook into some concepts, and then go try some stuff. Because, like, you can have a great conversation, and everybody's feeling good. It doesn't really matter until you can actually deliver something the other thing I found out is sometimes you end up doing something that doesn't even follow the conversation you had and it still works. So sometimes it can be a little dangerous, you know, at the beginning. Yeah, totally. And something I like about how you kind of run your business is that you have audio strategy. Like that's something that you talk about and mention and think about. What is that and how do you kind of guide clients through that whole idea? Yeah, I mean, it's such a big part of it. And audio strategy, I think for a composer, sounds so boring, doesn't it? Like I am aware of how like businessy it sounds <laughs> for lack of a better term, <laughs> but really for me, it's exciting. Like it actually is, it's just another dimension. What I really try to focus on, and I love the opportunity to talk about this because it's like we as composers have the opportunity to conjure emotion and all these beautiful things. And just because we're strategizing about it doesn't mean that we're taking away from any of that. We're adding to it. We're being really intentional about it. And that's kind of at least what the goal of that is. Yeah. And when do you kind of first talk to these clients? How do you get them to feel safe and on the same page and all those things as you're strategizing so they don't feel like they're lost while you may know what you're doing? 
we talk about what the goal of some of the initial explorations are, because I think it's different than telling a developer or a collaborator that I know what to do, but I tell them that I know how to figure it out. And so we ask questions like, I'm working on something now where we have to figure out the relationship between like environmental sounds and musicality. And we didn't really know the answer. It's like a perfect prompt for, all right, well, let's do the same piece three times, but have one skew one way, one be in the middle and one skew musically. Um, so we've got, you know, it's not a huge spectrum. It's just a sort of three different shades of the same thing. But then it's like, well, let's see what feels right. And I, I guess maybe that's why conversations tend to be just because like, this is how they work as communicators. They're more intellectual. Music is more emotional, you know, so you have to sort of translate that into something that feels right. So I try to keep the conversations quick, I guess. And not that I'm like in a rush because I have done projects where I think we've talked too much and then it's like, well, then what do we do now? I don't know. Sometimes you end up creating more questions and sort of over intellectualizing something that I don't think is about that. It's about a feeling. So how do you get to that feeling? And then the other way you get to it is just like, I think it's just with experience, you kind of hone your instincts and you get better at just getting to, to something a little more quickly. Yeah, that makes sense. And speaking of getting better, there's this phase, like maybe it's not a phase, maybe it lasts forever, where you're as a composer, you are, you know, working on something, maybe a client does or doesn't like it, doesn't matter, but you are in this in-between of worrying, am I good enough for this thing? Am I, am I ready? Is this going to be okay? And you're like in this kind of limbo wondering once you submit that piece or even before you submit that piece or that demo, you're terrified of how good you are, where you stand, all that. How do you think about that? It sucks when you're in it. I mean, I had it like two weeks ago. I don't think it goes away and I don't think I ever want it to because I think it is what keeps you examining yourself. I think we need periods of confidence where we're like, I, I feel so good about this and everything is going so well. And then I think we actually need valleys of like, you have to be careful not to go into like self-destructive brooding or anything like that. But I think it's good to go through periods where you're examining things a little differently. Not to say that it's really any fun when you're there, but it's tough. We've all been there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and can you tell me about a time where maybe you were doing that self-examination where it kind of pushed you in a new direction, maybe career-wise, or even on a certain track? It could be anything. I don't know if I have a good specific example, but I think that for me, the way that I that I try to get out of it is actually sort of like I try to restrict the time that I spend because I think to me, when it happens, it happens for a lot of reasons. Some of it is just it's a phase. It's a phase of the creative process. And it creeps up for different reasons. And, you know, sometimes I think, sometimes it comes up when you're actually getting better and you're like, I'm getting better. So I'm more critical about my previous work because, you know, you're sort of getting to a new plateau that can happen. I think what happens though, too, is like we get in our own heads. I think the thing about like doing audio, like whether it's music, sound design, implementation, whatever, it's pretty isolating. Like we're kind of in our pods or our studios or wherever we work. And we're by ourselves because we don't want to irritate everyone around us with all the sounds we're making. And so I think it is like a fairly easy career to get stuck in your head. Then I think it's like, how do you get out of your own head? And for me, it's kind of like, well, a lot of it becomes about reacquainting myself with what sounds like me, like what kinds of sounds and things do I feel like are things that inspire me that I gravitate to maybe finding a different expression of those things. And also just 
artificially limiting time forces you to trust your gut more. And when you're trusting your gut and you're out of your head, I think that's when you're writing better material generally, but we don't always have that luxury. What I've done projects where I'm kind of in my head and I just have to like trust my instincts, even if I'm not totally connected with them. I think sometimes those are the hardest, but then I've looked back on some of those projects and been like, you know what? That actually turned out. Okay. Like it turned out pretty well. So, (laughs) and you teach a class too, and I'm sure your students go through this. They do. I'm like, go take a walk, (laughs) take a walk. That's what I tell them. And I tell them I go through it too. I'm like, get ready because it doesn't go away. But if you can see it coming, if you can be like, all right, I'm starting to get a little doubtful about like where I am with this for whatever reason, whether you don't know whether it's right or whether you're starting to sort of have some imposter syndrome or whatever, I'm like, just work on it for an hour and then go take a walk. Like literally don't even think about it. That's why I I tend to tell my class, start your assignment like tomorrow rather than waiting for the day before it's due because we need that time. We need the time to sort of live with something that we make sometimes that time is just as valuable as the time we spent creating the thing yeah it's true and you might think of ideas you never could have if you're just chained to your computer it's funny how that works like when you are self-reflecting is kind of when a lot of good things can come our way as as creatives and i'm curious when you are in that kind of self-reflective phase is there some other thing you do do you practice in some other way do you pick up a synth like what is it that you do when you are in those phases or is work kind of the main output for you right now i would say my main creative outlet right now is projects that i work on mostly because of time constraints i think what helps put that creative energy back in is just for me personally just like trying to do stuff outside spending time with my family you know, just getting out of the studio, you know, I kind of have time blocked off every day. I need to reliably come in and sit in this chair and like write something good most of the time. And the only way that I can sort of set myself up for success is like by spending a little time away, but also spending time here regularly. And it's that whole like inspiration is for amateurs thing. It's just like another habit, you know, like it's a habit. You have to establish that good habit. And there's something you mentioned earlier of, you know, having projects sound like you, you know, expressing yourself in a way that is you. Your projects are so varied, which is so like you have chiptune to orchestral to hyperlight breaker. I don't know what you'd even call that style. And how do you kind of reconcile all these different styles? Because some composers start to think like, oh, to make sound like me, I can only do one thing for the rest of my life. You do a variety. How do you reconcile that? And how do you approach each gig differently because they are so different? That's my favorite thing about this job is inhabiting all those different spaces. I don't ever really think about how they all fit together, honestly. Like I, I th- I'm sure they do somehow. They're all me. So if I'm doing a piano piece or a chiptune track or whatever, I think there's going to be some common harmonic and melodic stuff happening. That was that was one of my dreams too, is just to do different stuff. And my thought process about it is like, I haven't ever really v- been very interested in genre, I think. I've been more interested in like sensibility, I think. I'm sort of just thinking out loud. and But I think if I had to kind of define it, it would be that I try to think about things in texture and mood rather than like melody and chords, because that's a sensibility, a very broad sensibility that I can apply to any genre or any subgenre. But I think the way that I tend to compose is very much about really broad stroke 
painting. And so I think what it'll also allows me to do is to get into the mindset and mood of whatever project I'm on. And because you're working in so many different styles, you're also working in many different mediums. You have games, you have commercials, you have art installations, you have all sorts of different stuff. And you as a business owner, how do you make it so that those different gigs still come in so people don't pigeonhole you like, oh, Joel's the game guy, he's the commercial guy, whatever it may be? Well, I've kind of had to figure that out as I've gone along. Um, so I have this business called Waveplant that does like audio branding and audio strategy. And I think a lot of the reason why that came to be was because of how I started my career. There was a time where I, as, especially when I was started to do more games, there still weren't enough to make a living. And I needed to do that stuff as I've done more games and it's comprised more of kind of my, my workload. I've still wanted to preserve that skill set that I've developed partially because, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time developing it, but mostly because there is a component to that process that I really enjoy that I think also makes me better at games. So it's, to me, it's two sides of the same kind of personality, which is as an independent composer, I think I'm a little bit more focused on things like emotional tone and all the sort of more feeling aspects of, of composing as wave plant, as I do, you know, like music for the automotive industry and brands and things like that. It's more about sort of objectively solving something with music. And to me, each helps the other, I think. Now, I'm curious how you even get known within all these spaces, because you're, you're in Chicago and, you know, Chicago isn't necessarily seen as like L.A. or something like that, some mecca. So how did you kind of get that network in all these different spaces where people know, oh, let's call Joel? I don't know. There was a time in my career where I just, I was like, I have to be in LA, like, or I, I want to move to somewhere that's more of like a central place in Chicago is obviously like, it's a big city, but it's not known for, for this. There's a few game studios here, some really good game studios. And there's, there are a lot of really talented independent developers, but you know, in terms of like an entertainment industry, however, or anything like that, it's small compared to like, obviously LA for well all kinds of entertainment, but like Seattle is huge for games, all, whatever. I just, I have a family here and like, I, there's no way I'm going to move. It's like, no, I'm, I think I can make it work from here. And I, so I just, I had no alternative. You know, I, I really like it here. And I just was like, well, I'm just going to do what I can from here. So for me, kind of in my twenties and you know, some of my thirties, it was about traveling, just meeting people, networking as much as I could. I got some projects that I considered some of my, my, favorite and most successful projects from like a, a blind email, like a loom, which was this short film that I did sound design for like 10 plus years ago. Now that was like a random email I sent. So I think for me, it was just about looking around for work that inspired me and then figuring out how to do more of that work. Um, and it took a long time because at first it's like just totally struck out so many times. And then did you know that going up to someone at GDC and telling them that you want to work on their game is not the best way to work on a game? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a lesson that every composer and sound designer goes through. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you have to, you got to try it. I think the, the way that like, we all sort of figure out at some point, you know, the best way is like, you have to immerse yourself in the community. The only way to do that is just you keep showing up and you do it for long enough that the only way that that you would keep doing it is if you really want to do it. Yeah, 
there's enough filters in place to uh, remove those who don't have enthusiasm. I think about something you said, I think it was on your Instagram, where it was like, we're constantly barraged with this idea that it's like, it's so competitive. And like, and it is like, it's competitive, but like, correct me if I'm saying this wrong, but it was like something to the effect of, yeah, but like, there are so many people that want to do it. And there are so much fewer that actually are able to show up for it. I'm simplifying it probably. No, that's exactly right. Like it's when you're in a competitive field, most of that competition is people who are only trying halfway and then just fall off at some point. Like the people who are sticking with it are pretty far and few between. Not to say there is no competition, but there's a lot less than is perceived when you just look at GDC and see all these people. It's pretty wild. Like I was recently hiring for sound design on a project. I couldn't find anyone. And you look on Twitter, it's like nothing but sound designers, right? But it's like, couldn't find then to find someone who has put in the work was almost impossible. It took like months before someone was found. It's like almost that like that reliability and enthusiasm matters like even more than being the best composer, being the best sound designer. Oh, I think it absolutely does. Like there's no question in my mind. And that's one of the things that I tell my students is I'm like, well, it's so easy to think it's so competitive. And, you know, any game developer could just pluck like Danny Elfman out of the ether or whatever. Like, I'm just using a name that everybody knows. But like, no, they can't. Because aside from the fact that, you know, a lot of composers might not be available, the one thing that you cannot force anyone to have is enthusiasm for your project. Right. So if you have genuine enthusiasm for a project, you are going to do a better job on it than anyone. The other thing I've learned, though, is that there's not one right path. You just have to know what the path that you picked is <laughs> and then stick to it, which is kind of tough sometimes. Yeah. And have you had moments in your career where you were like, maybe this music thing isn't for me? Yeah. I mean, probably more early on, you know, it's, I've been on Twitter. <laughs> um, <laughs> you poor thing. <laughs> and I've read things from composers that are like, I cannot imagine that I was put on earth for any other purpose than writing music. And I read that stuff and I'm like, should I feel that way? Cause I don't sometimes like sometimes I grapple with it and like, I love it. I love it more than anything. But I also like, I want to grapple with it. You know, for me, I think it makes me better where it's like, I want to think about it and think about like, am I the right person for this project? Like sometimes I'm like, well, maybe, but grappling with that to me is like scary and interesting and exciting. And I think sometimes that's like when I do my best work. Mm hmm. And it's an important part to a lot of people. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I think a lot of people, especially starting see these composers or sound designers or whoever who are like, this is, I've known since I was two years old and maybe they don't fall into that category and wonder, oh, am I screwed? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if there's any other way to know, but I think that it's like, it's great to question things. Yeah. That's how all the best things come about instead of just having absolute certainty hundred percent of the time. No one lives like that. Yeah. I don't believe it actually. <laughs> Absolute certainty exists some of the time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Totally. Yeah. Totally. You know, you're in so many different states. Like there are times where you're like where you said you're confident. There are times where you're not. And it feels like the energy that's generated from that grappling where you bounce back and forth between I suck to I'm great and everything in between is where the kind of art lives. Like it's kind of where the music, like the best stuff comes from because you're thinking about it. You're not just sitting there complacent, looking at the moon with a glass of wine, thinking, here's my masterpiece. Right. I think as soon as you start doing that, you might be a sort of at the tail end. 
I don't know. I, that sounds so um, fatalistic, doesn't it? I don't mean <laughs> it to sound like that, but I, I'd be very careful. I think we need moments of ego. Like, I think ego, you know, it's like, it's important. You know, I think we all sort of went through this phase. Maybe it was like several years ago where it was like, no ego, ego's bad. Like, no, ego's good. Like, we need the confidence boost. We need to sometimes nail it on the first try. But really, we just need enough to like provide enough momentum to get through the times when it's a little harder and you're you're grappling more. Yeah. It needs to be like properly applied, basically. Yeah. 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 I'm curious for you, were there any pivotal people in your life who, you know, maybe gave you that nudge or told you something that you were like, oh, that's it. Now I can move forward. So many. I mean, I'm trying to think of I'm sure I can sort of dig up some anecdotes, but there's one that's kind of coming to mind right now, which was like, you know, I think it's any time where you sort of, where you have a moment where you're like, oh, I, I just instantly get into new perspective on something. And I think I had this moment when I was working at the studio, writing music for commercials. And I was writing all this music that I thought was cool. And I was getting good feedback on internally, but the clients weren't picking it because that's kind of how it worked is there were six staff composers and we'd all compete for, for projects. And so, you know, it's a stressful model. It's a good model for who can write music that the client's going to pick. Does that mean it's going to be the best piece of music? No, but it's not about that. So there was this one day where I was kind of salty and I was like, oh, you know, I, the piece I wrote, like I, I was feeling really good about it. I felt like it was really cool. I felt like it fit the target demographic for what the commercial was trying to sell. And I remember the studio owner, this is a music company called Steve Ford Music. He he took a chance on me when I was in college and I, you know, I interned there for, for a few summers and he said, no, the target audience is those two guys on that couch <laughs> and gave me a different perspective. I think it applies to what I do as a composer for games, which is it's such an interesting role because our work is public facing, but the public does not hire us. Our target audience is generally one developer who's making who's making the decisions and so it it sort of changed my view it's a much more intimate collaborative relationship than i think i ever really understood it to be that was that was a an important moment for me there's a music supervisor at sony that i've worked with several times who has always pushed me to be better too i love working with a music supervisor because they make you do stuff <laughs> Sometimes I feel like, you know, it's easy to get into sort of complacency and I've never been one to do something just because it works. But I think sometimes, you know, the, the shortest distance is, is a compelling way to get stuff done. And I think sometimes a third party can push you to do a little bit more. And I always appreciate that. Yeah, it is always nice to have that outside force kind of re helping you realize what else you can do. I'm sure I'll think of like five more after. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, I have no yeah. doubt. <laughs> That's how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> so second to last question that I ask everybody who comes on here is when you first started in the world of music, that could be when you were a kid, that could be when you were in Oberlin, could be any starting point you want to kind of describe. How did you define success in terms of your career in music? And how has that changed over time? And what is that answer now? Oh, wow. Maybe I'll answer the answer now first. For me, success is for, is just freedom. Being self-employed and independent gives you the freedom to define success however you want. And I think that's really what your question is about, which is why it's such a compelling question. I think for me, it's, it's freedom to 
construct my life and my day and my routine and my relationships, you know, with everyone in my life, how I want, like, I'm not bound to a certain schedule or a certain way of doing things. I think that is my favorite thing about what I do. When I first started, I think probably success for me was mostly about fame. It's not something that I ever really cared that much about, but it's always, it's something that I've always been conscious of, which is like, how many followers does someone have? How many people buy their music? And I, I think what I've figured out is, as I've progressed, is that there is absolutely no correlation between all that stuff and feeling successful. Like if I'm able to write some music and have a productive day and create some stuff and then go on a camping trip with my kids or go to my son's baseball game or go on a walk, you know, like if I can sort of do those things in a way that flows for me, that to me is success. Like success is what does my daily life look like? I think like to put it in maybe the broadest way that I can success, I think at the beginning of my career was more about big moments, like winning a big award or working on a game that blew up or whatever. And I think as I get old, <laughs> older, it's more about small moments. It's more just like, how do I feel about waking up in the morning and doing this? And I feel great. What a beautiful way to wrap this up. So last question is, where can people find you? Plug anything you want. I'm just my name almost everywhere. I think everywhere on Instagram, Twitter, and then just the, the web. It's just Joel Corlitz. And that's where you can find me. Awesome. I can't wait for everyone to hear what we're doing on Breaker. Um, there's, there's a lot more coming. Yeah. Awesome. Beautiful. Thank you so much for taking the time. I love how insightful your answers were. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, this is great. No, I, I love talking to you. So thanks for having me on. I wanted to be on for a while. So this is, this is exciting. Oh, you're so sweet. Oh, you're so kind. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash soundbizpod. Sound, B-I-Z, pod. And that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects that'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game music and sound. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. And if you're looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to, this podcast is actually a part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. So if you want to check those out, hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org. 